0: This is the Naked Genetics Podcast,
1: taking a look
2: inside your genes.
3: one day be popping pills that tweak our metabolism and make us live longer, it's not as far off as you might think.
4: Hopefully it might actually be within your lifetime so that you might be able to take something that will prevent any chronic condition that will uh, increase in prevalence as you age.
3: Plus, the cow genome goes large, bat flu flies into focus and an untidy gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for October 2014 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Last month we took a look at the researchers hunting for the genes behind ageing and now we're returning to the topic with a closer look at the links between genes, ageing and metabolism. That's how we use food to generate energy in the body and how animals respond to changes in the environment. To start with, I spoke to Dr Jennifer Tullett from the University of
0: Kent to find out more about her work in this area. I try and understand the function of individual genes that affect lifespan and healthspan. We're very interested in that here. And I also look at how you can um, alter the environment of an organism. For example, you can alter its dietary intake and extend its lifespan. So we're interested in that. And also how these dietary interventions, for example, impact on the expression of genes and the function of genes in in these processes. So how the things
3: around us control whether our genes are switched on or off at different times?
0: Yes, exactly.
3: Because this might seem strange because you think, well, I've got my my genes and they they just do their thing. Actually, the genome is
0: changing all the time, isn't it, in terms of which genes are on and which genes are off? Yes, it's very important. Genes are switched on and off, but it's probably much more intricate than that and there's a lot of different levels of gene expression and it's a coordination expression of lots of different things at once. So it's about the kind of the, the orchestra, how, how it plays and yes, how it's kind of going right? out of yeah gene, That's I a
3: suppose. very nice analogy, yes. So so tell me, what what are you studying? How are you trying to home in
0: on these these genes and how they interact with our environment? Okay, so I guess my main focus is I look at um, different transcription factors that are involved in ageing. And transcription factors are proteins that are responsible for controlling the expression of a whole range of other genes. Okay, so they're key regulatory molecules. Kind of master switches, I guess. Master switches, yeah. And I'm interested in two of those specifically. One's called DEF16 and the other one is called SKIN1. So I look at the activity of these genes, I look at these other genes that they regulate, and I try and understand how they function in different scenarios and which one of their target genes that they're regulating are important for lifespan. So you could be doing all sorts of things from just like keeping the worms going to actually controlling how long they're gonna live for? They live for about three weeks normally. But if you mutate either DEF16 or skn one then you dramatically shorten that lifespan by about 30%. So like two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. <laughs> what kind of things are you finding so far that seem
3: to be important that these genes do?
0: One gene that seems to be very interesting is AMPK, which is AMP-activated protein kinase
3: sounds complicated
0: (laughs) that sounds complicated and that's a very important metabolic enzyme and that seems to be very important for regulating lifespan as well
3: it seems to me that there seems to be a lot about like the metabolism how our bodies use energy that is linked to
0: aging is it something to do with like you know the faster you burn the shorter you live that's like the rate of rate of living hypothesis (laughs) type idea that doesn't seem to be quite as fashionable anymore in the aging field it's not a question um because there are examples of small animals that have very high metabolic rates that don't that live for quite a long time so that's not it doesn't necessarily correlate the two things. What do we know about how metabolism is affecting these worms and their lifespan and and how does it all seem to fit together? In C. elegans actually one of the most amazing lifespan extending mutations is a mutation in a gene called DEF2 and if you make one single point mutation in this gene then you can double and even sometimes triple the lifespan of a worm. That's pretty
3: incredible. It's
0: very incredible. And it is also conserved, so you get the same effect in flies, you get it in mice. And there is also a small amount of evidence that the same thing could happen in humans as well. So, if you, if you have this massive lifespan extension with mutation of DEF2, DEF2 is the insulin receptor. So these worms must have altered metabolism. In fact, if this was a human, they would be severely diabetic. <laughs> Because insulin is how your body controls the level of sugar yes. that goes into its cells yes. and stuff like exactly. that. Yes, exactly, yes. So this lifespan extension caused by mutation of DAF2 is dependent on those two transcription factors that I mentioned, which are DAF16 and skin one And these transcription factors are really important because they are regulating a whole variety of other genes. And one of the genes that I've recently discovered that's does contribute to this massive lifespan extension of DAF2 worms is this gene called AMPK. This is a critical metabolic enzyme and it's responsible for regulating the energy homeostasis in the cell. So it can sense when the body has low amounts of energy available and that switches it on.
3: So it'll kind of stop you burning so much energy, just kind of
0: keep, keep you going. Keeps everything under control. And it seems that if you make mutations in this enzyme, then the worms can't live as long.
3: Where, where do you want to see this go? I mean, obviously, this is in worms, and uh, that could be quite a useful thing to do for the worm population, I guess. But where do you see the applications of this work going?
0: Well, something that we do a lot of here is we try and look between species. So, if we just, worms are really great to do aging studies in because they're so short lived. That's why so many people do it. Drosophila are also very good, they're short lived, but still, you know, you're, it's still a lot longer than a worm. So what we try and do here is if we find something in a worm, we then try and move it into a fly. And then we can also try and move up to a mammalian model as well, with the hope that if, if this research holds true in a ma- mammal, then it could also be relevant to humans.
3: And it does seem to me that there's a lot of interest in the field of ageing, in metabolism and tweaking metabolism, and, you know, people having very, very low-calorie diets or taking all these kind of supplements and things. Are there things that we definitely know at the moment will work in humans? You know, if I wanted to live longer and and tweak my metabolism, is there anything I know that I should definitely be trying to do?
0: I think in terms of an anti-aging pill, if that's what you're asking, um, I don't think we're quite there yet. We do know in lower organisms that there are certain drugs that can be given to the animals to extend their lifespan. There are a number of those, including um, rapamycin. That's a very good one. Um, but in terms of humans, I wouldn't like to recommend that anyone uh, takes any of these things in the very near future. I think the best thing people can do for now is just maintain a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle. Oh, a all the boring stuff. All the usual <laughs> stuff, yes, and you're probably in with a good chance of, of living a, a healthy existence. How long would you want to live for? I would want to live for as long as I can be healthy and independent. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of people. If I'm healthy and independent, then I'm likely to be very happy and um, I can just, yeah, carry on. But that is what our research is geared towards. We're not geared towards making people live forever in an awful, decrepit state. That's nothing, that's not what we want at all. What we really are interested in is increasing the healthy lifespan of an individual. That's what we really want to achieve. And the amazing thing, is to me as a researcher and the thing that's really like kept me going in this field is the fact that if you have these point mutations that extend the lifespan of a worm or a fly or a mouse, not only do they live longer, but they are actually an awful lot healthier. That's the amazing thing about them. So I think the, the f- fact that we study ageing and lifespan as an endpoint is one thing, but the, the really important thing to bear in mind is that we're really st- interested in healthspan. That was Jennifer Tullett from the University of Kent. This month, researchers at the University
3: of Oxford and the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute published results from the biggest ever study looking at how genetic variation in people affects how they respond to malaria infection. To explain more about the study and why it was urgently needed to push forward the frontiers in the battle against this killer disease, I spoke to project leader Professor Dominic Kwatkowski, Director of the Medical Research Council's Centre for Genomics and Global Health.
2: Well, it's been known for uh, over half a century that human genetic factors influence the outcome of malaria, and and indeed that malaria has been a major source of evolutionary pressure on the human genome, and there have been a very large number of papers, hundreds of papers, published on different genetic factors that seem to influence susceptibility to malaria, And, and in particular, influence the likelihood that a child who's living in a malaria endemic region who is repeatedly infected with malaria, the chance that child will die or suffer life-threatening complications of that infection. Because one of the curious things is that uh, in areas where malaria is endemic, whilst everyone has malaria for much of the time, only a certain proportion of malaria attacks are fatal. Uh, Although a lot of um, studies have been published on the genetic factors, they've tended to come from relatively small studies, And so when you look at the literature, you find lots of reported associations. It's very difficult to know which of them, whether when you see differences, whether those differences are true biological differences, or alternatively, just due to small sample size or to... uh, various factors that caused noise or to differences in assay design.
3: So with this study, how many people did you manage to get into it? And what did you find?
2: Well, we uh, managed to recruit um, over 12,000 cases of severe malaria, life-threatening forms of malaria from about 10 or 11 countries, together with about 17,000 population controls. So the, the total size of the study was 30,000 individuals. And what we found when we tested about 50 known uh, loci that had been reported to um, determine resistance to malaria, we found that um, some of them were undoubtedly authentic and gave very strong and consistent effects. It was was not any surprise at all that we found very strong effects, protective effects.
3: Would this be things like the sickle cell gene that we know about?
2: Exactly. Sickle, it wasn't at all a surprise that it, it gave a strong effect. I think what did pleasantly surprised us was that that effect was very strong. Uh, It gives about 90% protection and it was very consistent across sites. And also importantly, it was consistent protection against different sorts of severe malaria. So children can die of malaria for multiple reasons. One is profound coma, a syndrome known as cerebral malaria, and another is profound anemia. And it turned out that sickle cell gave exactly the same protection against those different outcomes. And that, I think, tells us that sickle cell is not protecting against those outcomes per se, but it's doing something for that that's sort of helping to reduce the infection per se, and that in turn is reducing the risk of these complications. So the, the take-home message was, was really uh, three things. Uh, firstly, there was a bunch of things that we knew about that replicated. i mentioned sickle, also blood group O, also a, a calcium channel a gene called ATP2B4 and another thing called G6PD. But then a whole bunch of other things that have been reported before just didn't replicate in the multicenter analysis. And that really showed the power of doing a large study. It allows you to sort the wheat from the chaff. The third thing we found, which was really important, was that some of the authentic loci gave very consistent effects, but others uh, were undoubtedly authentic, but actually gave quite heterogeneous effects, either heterogeneous between different locations Different, different geographical regions, or heterogeneous in their effects on different forms of severe malaria. And the most striking example of that was this genetic factor called G6PD deficiency, that's a blood disorder, uh, which, um, which gives uh, protection against cerebral malaria, that's to say coma due to malaria, but actually makes individuals liable to profound anemia. So that was a bit of a surprise to us.
3: And when you think about the, the battle between the human genome and the malaria genome, it's, it is a bit of an evolutionary arms race. That tells us that, that it's a complicated battle going on, doesn't it?
2: Well, it does. And I, I, I think that this study gives us a foundation for looking at those issues, because one of the most important outcomes of that evolutionary arms race that you're talking about is going on in real time, it means that actually things are changing a lot. Um, in, in real time and so genetic effects that may operate today in one population may not be operating in a different population at a different time because the parasite population may have changed but what we have here as a result of this study is a framework that we can study those heterogeneous effects with some level of scientific certainty but the problem is that when we just do patchy isolated small studies we never know whether those differences are due to true biological heterogeneity or whether they're just the sort of noise of doing, um, of just doing small studies, which aren't well, particularly well standardized. And now we have a framework to study that heterogeneity in considerable detail. And that's, that's, a, that's an extraordinary advance for us and for the field, we believe.
3: That was Dominic Kwiatkowski from the MRC Center for Genomics and Global Health. And now it's time for a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. The cattle genome has gone large as an international consortium of researchers announces a global database of cow gene sequences. In a new paper in the journal Nature Genetics, the scientists described the genomes of 232 bulls and two cows from four different breeds, including Angus beef cows and Jersey milkers. In particular, they focused on key ancestor bulls, which have produced millions of descendants between them. With these new additions, the Cattle Genome Database now comprises more than 1,200 animals of different breeds and the data can be linked to data on key characteristics such as health, fertility, milk yield and growth, so researchers can spot genetic variations that lead to differences between breeds. The scientists hope that the database will become the gold top standard reference manual for cow genetics and will open the door for further research into breeding and farming. Sounds utterly wonderful. Bats are well-known carriers of human viruses such as rabies and the headline-grabbing Ebola, but could they be harboring other infections too? Researchers recently discovered flu virus-like genes in bats, raising concerns that these nocturnal creatures might carry flu viruses and could transmit them to people. Fortunately, a new study from US researchers published in the journal PLOS Pathogens suggests that bats may be in the clear for now. Because they couldn't find any trace of live flu virus particles in the animals, the researchers looked at the flu-like genes in depth to find out if they came from active infectious viruses or were merely relics of defunct ancestors. Next, they synthesised the entire DNA of one of the bat viruses called Bat09 and put it into human cells growing in the lab. Surprisingly, the virus DNA led to the creation of flu-like virus particles, but these were unable to infect any other types of cells, including human, dog, monkey, pig, or bats themselves. This is because the virus DNA doesn't encode crucial proteins in the virus coat that enables it to get into cells. And the scientists think that the bat viruses are unlikely to be able to pick up this ability by recombining with other flu viruses inside bats due to genetic incompatibility. So for now, we only have to worry about rabies and Ebola. Dogs share many aspects of their lives with humans, such as loving a warm fire, a good dinner and regular belly rubs. But man's best friend also shares a darker trait with its owners, the ability to spontaneously develop cancer, which is the most common cause of doggy death. While the genomes of several breeds of dog have now been sequenced, helping to shed light on many diseases that affect both humans and canines, less is known about the epigenome, the molecular switches that control when genes are turned on or off. Writing in the journal Cancer Research this month, Spanish researchers have characterised the dog epigenome, in this case from a cocker spaniel, in unprecedented depth. They also found that when the dog cells undergo a change that's critical in the development of cancer, known as the epithelial to mesenchymal transition, there are key epigenetic changes. Importantly, similar changes are seen in human cells when they undergo this transformation, suggesting pathways that are conserved during evolution. Researchers around the world are currently developing drugs that can manipulate the epigenome, which may hold promise for treating cancer not only in ourselves, but in our four-legged friends too. If you want to find out more about these stories, the references are on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr Katani Still to come, we'll be finding out about the upcoming Genetic Society autumn meeting, focusing on the links between genetics and neuroscience, and meeting our untidy gene of the month. But first, we return to our age-old topic with Dr Nazif Alic at the UCL Institute of Healthy Aging. He's figuring out if tweaking some of the genes involved in metabolic signalling could help to prolong healthy lifespan. But could it help us live forever?
4: I don't think we'd really be able to live forever but what we might be able to do is to have a lifespan that's free of chronic and debilitating diseases that occur with age.
3: So obviously this is a big problem in our society we all live longer we don't have as many infectious diseases but there's a long period at the end of life when it's it's very debilitating.
4: The final outcome of the research that we are doing or we hope the final outcome would be to actually reduce uh, the severity or reduce the duration of that very uh, unhealthy period that certain people have at the end of their life,
3: so this is about health span rather than lifespan
4: yes, hopefully it is about health span rather than lifespan, but lifespan does keep on increasing in our society, so there 's a certain fear when people talk about extending lifespan, but actually. Most of the medical advances that we've seen recently as well as advances in hygiene and the way society functions have resulted in an extension of human lifespan and it's about making that lifespan better.
3: So tell me about the work that you're doing, how are you trying to increase health span?
4: A big part of what I'm doing or what I have been doing recently is trying to understand how manipulation of a single signalling pathway can extend this healthy lifespan.
3: So these are the messages sent inside cells that tell them to do stuff?
4: So this is the wiring that tells you how to respond to your environment. And these signaling pathways tend to be nutrient uh, sensing signaling pathways. And the one that we are working on is uh, the insulin IGF signaling pathway. Um, So basically the pathway exists so that your body can adapt to changing environmental conditions and in particular to change in nutritional conditions.
3: So you eat a meal, insulin helps you use the nutrients from that meal, the sugar?
4: Insulin tells the cells what to do with that. The sugar is present and what to do with that sugar. And it essentially can dictate the met- metabolism of, uh, of the whole animal. What the community has recently found is that if you modulate that pathway, so by modulating, I mean, if you slightly inhibit the insulin IGF, signaling pathway in a number of animals you can extend their healthy lifespan.
3: So you can kind of turn it down and they'll live longer healthier?
4: Yeah so you turn it down they will live longer they will live healthier and also it seems to help with a lot of uh, diseases. When we look at model organisms and we try to mimic human diseases in model organism, reduction in insulin signaling can ameliorate those diseases as well.
3: You mentioned model organism. What organisms are you looking at?
4: So I'm personally working on, um, on the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster.
3: That's not something I associate with being tremendously long-lived. <laughs>
4: So they're not very long-lived, which helps us do the experiment so we can finish them quite quickly. Uh, They do live for some hundred days. We can get them to live 200 days or even longer.
3: Presumably then you can actually find flies that do live particularly longer or or healthier lives even within that time scale.
4: Uh, Yes. So what's the biggest advantage of Drosophila is that its genetics have been studied for such a long time. There are a lot of very neat tools that we can use to alter... Their genetic makeup or to alter uh, signaling within these pathways in very specific moments in time during the adulthood of the fly and in very specific tissues so we can try to understand in minute detail of what kind of manipulation we need to achieve a healthy Uh, Long lifespan,
3: and how do you tell if a fruit fly is kind of feeling old? Yeah, it's all my back. I forgot where I've put my car keys. Uh, How do you actually uh, look at these flies and and work out how they're aging?
4: Um, So one of the main outputs that we've been using is really just how long they live. So simply, we can see when a fly is dead. Or alive, uh-huh. but more recently, we've been trying to look at more detail in um, about their lifespan. So, um, we can, for example, look at how well they move. So, similar to humans, as flies get older, their movement becomes slower and they move, they find it harder to move. So, little it's flies the in a frame, kind of thing. Yes, little flies not walking as fast as they could 20 days before. <laughs> um, so it is that, that is a very sim- simple measure of their health and one that we've been using a lot.
3: So you can find that manipulating this pathway, this IGF pathway, affects their lifespan and their health span. Uh, what now? Where where do you want to go with this work?
4: So uh, the most recent work that we've done is looking at the effector of this pathway. So we know. In modern organisms, again, the, the positive if beneficial effects of this pathway require a transcription factor called FOXO, um, and this transcription factor essentially rewires the way the genetic information is used, remodels the the way the genetic information is used so that uh, the animal lives longer. And we've been trying to work out exactly which genes are controlled by FOXO, in which tissues, and how they can result in an extended, healthy period in life and an extended lifespan.
3: If I was to have a child, how long would it be before I could give them some kind of fox manipulating thing that might make them live a much, much longer life?
4: I don't think we really know how long it's going to be. Hopefully it might actually be within your lifetime. So you might be able to take something that will prevent uh, dementia or that might prevent uh, type 2 diabetes or any other or any chronic condition that will uh, increase in prevalence as you age. But we don't know. What's quite exciting about this field is now we've come to the point where we do have drugs that can be administered to people, so they are FDA approved, they're approved for use on humans, and those drugs in model organisms can extend their healthy lifespan.
3: So this seems to be much closer than perhaps we might
4: think. Possibly, yes. I think the next step will be, on one hand, people like me working on model organisms, we need to refine the approaches that can be used. And uh, the other thing that needs to happen is in parallel is for people to find means to uh, see if those manipulations actually do work in humans.
3: How long would you like to live for?
4: I think the younger you are, the less you care, but I'm starting to care more and more. I do know that I have a very good amount of risk for cardiovascular disease and I would really like to avoid having a stroke or a very debilitating heart attack. So for me, it may not be that much about how long I live, but just the quality of life as I get older.
3: That was Dr Nazif Alic from the UCL Institute of Healthy Ageing. On the 27th and 28th of November, top genetics researchers from the UK and around the world will gather at the Royal Society in London for the Genetic Society's Autumn Meeting, entitled Genetic Approaches to Study the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. I spoke to co-organiser Dr Matt Jones from Bristol University to get a flavour of what we can expect.
1: Genetics and neurobiology are intertwined on so many levels and across so many timescales that this was a great opportunity to really emphasise how closely linked the the fields are and in particular to emphasise how technology that allows us to manipulate genetics is informing our understanding of the neurobiology of learning and memory. And we also wanted to focus a little bit on uniting the efforts of scientists who work in model organisms like Drosophila, the fruit fly, which are famous for being very genetically tractable. Um, and the other extreme, people who work on mammalian systems, so in rodents and in humans, and really take the opportunity for the two um, sort of parallel methodologies to inform each other explicitly. Because often those um, researchers do move in parallel, and that's a shame. We're not taking advantage of each other as well as we should. I guess it's um, particularly timely in light of this year's Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, which was awarded for work understanding in large part the, the nature of spatial memory encoding in the brain. And there'll be some good examples of talks that relate genes and gene function and the use of genetic technology to that spatial navigation system in the brain. So that Nobel Prize does a good job of advertising the importance of this meeting.
3: Are there any particular talks you're really excited about or techniques you're really keen to hear about?
1: So a good example is the reward system. You know, our, a lot of our memories are stored because they relate to important or exciting events in our lives. And that raises a lot of questions about what in the brain is it that tags these events as important or exciting? there's been some great work done in Drosophila dissecting apart those systems using optogenetics, for example, so a technique that allows you to control neural activity with light, which is easily applied in Drosophila because they're small and somewhat translucent depending on their life stage. But there are people beginning to apply those technologies in mammals now as well. So the speakers um, span the globe, some from the US, some from Europe, some from Japan, are really at the forefront of of driving forward these techniques and understanding of uh, learning and memory.
3: If anyone's listening to this and thinks, yep, I'm in this field or I'm really interested in this field, how can they come along to the meeting? When and where is it and how can they get to come along?
1: Ah, well, that's the easy bit. So the meeting is at the Royal Society in London from the 27th to 28th of November. You can head along to the genetics.org.uk website and register. We're particularly keen for, for younger early career stage scientists to come along hear from these uh, flashy bigwigs in the field and get the chance to chat with them directly, um, which can be really important in inspiring people in their their future careers and experiments.
3: And if you're keen to come along, just head over to the Genetic Society website, that's genetics.org.uk, and register now. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's looking a bit scruffy. It's unkempt. Discovered in September this year in the developing photoreceptor nerves in a fruit fly's eye, Unkempt, along with another newly identified gene called Headcase, helped to control how the developing nerve cells become specialised into particular roles in vision. Problems with the timing of this process can lead to brain disorders such as epilepsy or autism, but until recently very little was known about the genes that control it. Unkempt and headcase are just the first parts of this pathway to be discovered, but there are undoubtedly more. And it's not just flies. The researchers also found that the mammalian version of unkempt is active in the developing eye of a mouse pup in the womb, as well as developing brain cells, suggesting it might be doing a similar job there too. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month with some of the latest research into the genetics of cancer. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at scientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.